As you do so, if you'll take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn to the book of Acts. We'll begin reading in uh, chapter 25, verse 13. We are going to read through chapter 26. This is even a longer one than last week. Verse 23. So we're going to read from 20, from 13 all the way through 26, 23. So it's a hefty portion of Scripture, uh, but there's a lot of narrative of accounts, and we just simply want to read the accounts in their fullness. And so if you'll follow along with me. As I read, and if I go a little too quickly, well, just jump ahead. So, uh, But I wanted to read the entirety of it, uh, and we are going to try to handle all of this. Much of it is going to be review of other things we have already carefully studied in Acts uh, when uh, those events were re- first recorded. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 25, beginning verse 13 through 26, verse 23. God's word declares. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not, is it not the custom of the Romans to deliver It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. For when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Well, tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and it entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was no, not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to be unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from 
the beginning among my own nation in, at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes to, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, but the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we continue our service. Well, last week we had an opportunity to... Um, look at some comparisons uh, between those who had to give an answer for the faith that is in them in public trial uh, and in the public forum. And we have seen several opportunities to see that in Paul, both among the Jewish people, uh, in terms of the chief priests and the, the Sanhedrin, um, but also in front of Felix and then Festus and now before King Agrippa. And uh, this is really our final uh, presentation by Paul of his testimony uh, here in the book of Acts. We have it recorded for us in several of the epistles, as well as he uh, again gives his background uh, to the Corinthians, to the Romans, and such like that, to give his, his uh, uh, testimony of his 
walk with the Lord and his coming to Christ, as well as where he came, what he came out of. But we find here, uh, what we want to focus in on is not the account, because we have studied it carefully, um, but rather on two facets of his uh, presentation of the gospel to King Agrippa. And we want to really examine why those two. And uh, one of them is we've been robbed of hearing. Uh, if you will recall that right when Paul gets to the part that where God calls him to the Gentiles, he doesn't get to finish his testimony. Their response is to yell, scream, and start beating on him. And so he doesn't get any farther than that. And so here we finally get him to finish because King Agrippa wants to hear the whole story. And none of the Jews are going to interfere because they're really not there. We find that this is kind of an impromptu hearing. Um, It wasn't planned ahead other than the night before. And so uh, Paul's accusers really aren't on the scene. And uh, he is going to be given freedom to really talk uh, at length. And in fact, one of the things he asked for early on is be patient. Because I'm going to give you the whole story if you really want to hear it. And uh, obviously, King Agrippa is very interested in hearing it, uh, and uh, both in his, uh, the way he gives Paul, essentially, everyone's attention at the very beginning, as he uh, talks about the effectiveness of Paul's message uh, intermediately, and then at the very end, when he declares um, very sympathetically, this man is completely innocent. And so we find that this is an opportunity for him to approach a man who is very interested in finding out what this way of Christ, what the way of Jesus is all about. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth and, and has apparently uh, made himself uh, knowledgeable of it and unavoidably so, um, not just because of his wife's Jewishness, um, but also because of the history of the last 30 years. Um, where the testimony of a living man who had been crucified and had come to life uh, was very real, as the eyewitnesses are still walking around, talking about it. And the effect of it is still very clearly seen in the regions of Judea and Samaria, um, as well as north into Antioch, where it had laid hold uh, very clearly and strongly to such strength that when Jerusalem falls, the center of Christianity is going to move north into Antioch. And, and uh, that's where it's going to be the center of its, of its leadership. Before we go into, into some of those details of specifically those two facets of his testimony, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, your word before us and for its reliability and for the truth that it communicates, for its preservation that we might have it here before us um, with great confidence in our own language. And we pray that we might uh, be careful in our handling of it, that your spirit might direct and move in this time uh, to guard us uh, from putting in what is not there and from removing what is clearly there at our whim. Lord, rather help us to uh, be willing to receive its whole counsel and that you might Uh, strengthen us in that hope that it declares and that it might move us to walk in its ways. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul begins at 
the beginning. He says, I was with the Jews. I was one of them. They knew me. I was an appointed official of them that uh, did everything he could to stop this movement called the way. This movement that followed this one Jesus of Nazareth. And he recounts that uh, he worked against that. But in the middle of recounting his history, he also correlates what we've already seen him introduce at the Sanhedrin that caused such a division, and that is the hope of the Law and the Prophets. And uh, this is very critical um, for his audience, uh, specifically for King Agrippa and Bernice, to hear this facet of this, that this is not him uh, coming up against Judaism. This is not him coming to try to undermine it or to bring her heresy into it, but rather that in Jesus Christ we have the fulfillment of the Judaic hope. We have the fulfillment of Israel's uh, longing, of their anticipation, and that it has come and that they have rejected it. And so here as he begins by sharing some of his of his history with with um, King Agrippa in chapter 26, we find that his focus comes right back to the promise of God, not just those made by Christ himself in his teaching ministry in the Gospels, but all the way back to the law and the prophets, that they all pointed to and spoke of this one to come. And I think we sometimes lose track of this, that in all this ministry time of Paul, um, the scriptures that he's opening uh, are the law and the prophets. There are no New Testament books largely. There have some been written by now, certainly, but they have not been widely dispersed. And so they, they aren't widely read or known and, and not even necessarily recognized as scripture yet. And so Paul has been, throughout the, the entirety of his ministry, the scriptures he's relying on are the law and the prophets. And the hope that he is communicating that was fulfilled and, and finds a completion in Jesus Christ of Nazareth um, has been that hope that has been Israel's since its beginning, going back even before the law. When we think of the prophets, we often think of of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those guys. But I want to remind you that when we're talking about the law and the prophets, we are going to pre-law as well. Because the prophets include men like Noah and Enoch that walk with God and, and that communicated the word of God. We, 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 we work through and we, we see uh, that among them have to be... Um, uh, oh, I just lost his name out of my head. I'll get it. Um, it. It stretches into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, who were all before the law, but were among the prophets of God. Melchizedek, there we go. I wanted to say Methuselah, but I wanted to say Melchizedek. That All of these became communicators of God's truth. So when Paul talks about the hope of Israel, the hope of the prophets, it's really not just Israel's prophets, but really all of the prophets stretching back of all those of faith. And so he talks about the, the promise made by God to our fathers in verse 6. And now I stand and judge for the hope of the promise made by God and our fathers. To this 
are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, I am accused by the Jews. Unless there be any doubt in anyone's mind what this hope is, Paul in the very next verse is going to identify it, but I want you to recognize how he identifies it is by assumption. Remember he started out his statement talking about how King Agrippa was expert in these matters. King Agrippa was well aware, in fact, the evidence is that he has been following the way um, that his uh, wife Bernice may have been very much an influence there uh, and been very interested in it. Uh, there's some strong evidence that he was certainly uh, well taught in the law and the prophets um, and may have had a lot of influence from particularly the Pharisaic um, um, side. And to us, you might say, well, Pharisees are hypocrites. But in this day, Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were the recognized religious leaders and uh, the men that you listen to if you want to know what the Law and the Prophets taught. But Paul was not just declaring something of just trying to uh, uh, pad himself, if you will, by talking about Agrippa's uh, uh, knowledge of what was going on, but rather that um, while Festus was hogtied, really, to try to understand what it was all about, being new to the region, and really not understanding Judaism at all, um, and really only knowing Roman law, now we have a very different individual sitting there right beside Festus. And this is an individual that Paul recognizes is a, a one who has studied this, and has been in this area, is, is personally invested in this this isn't just an assignment um, for him in his career path, but rather this has taken up much of his life uh, and he has invested himself in it. And so we find that uh, he is willing to rehearse this hope. But I want you to notice that nowhere until we get down to verse 8 do we find him talking about the resurrection. Just a hope, a hope, a hope. A promise. This is the promise. And never does he define the hope and the promise. He makes the jump with King Agrippa that the hope and the promise is the resurrection. That is the hope and the promise going all the way back. And he can go back to, to evidence that is there in the Old Testament that points to that. Um, we can think very quickly of David's declaration that I can go to him, but he will not come to me regarding to his, his dead child. Um, and therefore, there was no reason to, to fast and, and to pray and, and if, because there can't undo that. Um, but there is an expectation of life after death, that there's something more to this, that God in his grace and in his mercy kept Adam and Eve from that tree of life so they wouldn't have to live forever in their sin. And so that hope, that promise that was given of the one who would come born of a, the seed of a woman, what a strange statement to make, um, that would crush Satan's head. Oh, this is the hope of all the prophets in the law. This is what they all point to. And, and shame on us if we are incapable of taking the Old Testament and leading people to Jesus. 
Because that's what they all point to. There's a Messiah, there's a Deliverer, there's, there's a solution to this sin dilemma introduced by Adam and Eve, given from the very beginning. And all of it points to this one, Jesus of Nazareth. And so King Agrippa recognizes it. Now understand that Festus had already had a conversation with Agrippa the night before. Let's look at that conversation back in chapter 25, just a little review. And again, Paul, as far as we know, was not privy to this conversation. Uh, Let's pick up in verse 18. It says, When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against them, such things as I supposed, but had some questions against them about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And then I was uncertain of such questions. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged. He appealed to Caesar. And so Agrippa has some notion of what this guy is all about. He knows the issue at hand. The issue at hand is this matter of what do we do with a historical event that at this point is pretty much undeniable. The Romans couldn't deny it, really. Um, they had no body to present. The, the resurrection was, was a matter of record. It was a matter of eyewitness accounts that were very reliable. It was the, the matter of, of a Roman soldiers being paid off, um, but certainly that didn't last long, uh, of recognizing that the, the stone was rolled away and the body wasn't there. So when Agrippa hears what the issue at hand is, when he hears this name Jesus who was died, and the evidence here is that Festus doesn't even really know how he died, but that he died, and that he is now alive. Agrippa's response in verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. I am not satisfied hearing it from an unbeliever who doesn't know the facts who doesn't recognize, doesn't know the history of the region. He says, I want to hear this man myself. If he is that much an enemy of the Jews, if he is that much sought after them, he must have access to the information that will fill in the blanks, if you will, in my inquiry into this. I want to hear it for myself. What a great attitude. And no wonder Paul is so anxious to get at this testimony. I want to hear it myself. And sometimes that's really the spirit that we're looking for in people. Not that they want to hear it from God themselves, but they want to hear it from a true believer themselves. I want you to recognize and understand that many of the people that you encounter, who even call themselves Christians, have never heard it for themselves. They've never really been exposed to God's word. There are many unbelievers that all they know about Christianity is what they've heard in the media. And we all know how accurate that is, right? How accurate is the media in representing the claims of Christianity and the truths of the Bible? They make a movie and people think that's it. That's how it happened. And uh, they have no contact or recollection or knowledge of it themselves. And so it's so important that in our sharing Christ that we take and point them in the Bible and say, there it is, look at it yourself. And here's the spirit of Agrippa. I want to hear it myself. If I get it 
secondhand from someone who doesn't have the knowledge and doesn't have access and doesn't believe in it and doesn't really have a... um, I'm getting it tainted and I'm getting it in small portion that's inaccurate and that's that's got huge gaps. Um, Festus can communicate the essence. The essence is this guy was dead, now he's alive. That's the essence of the gospel message. There's no doubt. But that's not sufficient. Grippa wants to know more and he wants to hear this man himself. And if he can take it to the religious leaders of Israel and put them into a tailspin, I want to hear him. And so Agrippa is responsive. So he already knows what the hope is. He already knows what the promise is. And Paul, by, I have to believe, the Spirit's uh, revelation to him, uh, makes that assumption and makes that leap very quickly. And then, rather than trying to uh, communicate the resurrection, he calls it the promise, the hope. And then, in verse 8, the question, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why is that so hard to believe? It is the hope that God gave in the Garden of Eden in the midst of the curse. It is the thing that Israel has served after and sought after and and hoped to attain all the way through. All of them looked forward to the resurrection. Everything spoke of it, moved toward it, identified it. Their hope was not in a dead God. Their hope was in the living God. And Hebrews goes through and makes that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living And Paul emphasizes this again in in Romans and other places that we serve a living God. We have a living hope. This is what all of it was about. was about that we will forever be with the Lord. Not just in the church age was that the hope, but also in Israel and in the time of the twelve tribes that those who followed after the Lord, men men that, that we look at and identify and even in the midst of the of the wickedness that caused God to have them sent off captive into Assyria and then into Babylon. Um, even within that we saw faithful men who would not bow to an idol even if it cost them their lives. Why? Because they had a living God who walked with them in the midst of the furnace. And they knew that was their sure hope. That was the promise. Is that you will have life through the seed of a woman who will give his life's blood to atone for your sin and then conquer sin and death. And this was the hope of Israel. This was the promise of God. And so he confronts Agrippa with this simple fact and in the hearing of Agrippa all the other leaders of Caesarea why is it so unbelievable to you that God can raise the dead? Perhaps because your little g gods are so human and weak. And really when you look at the 
the pantheon of Greek and Roman belief system, um, they really are weak. They're weak. Um, they, they have the same problems that humans have. They commit the same acts of sin as humans commit. Um, they are jealous. They um, can be uh, weakened and, and taken some aspects of their deity away at t- from time to time. Um, they have problems. They have fights. They have, I mean, the, let's just be honest. The Roman pantheon is simply human behavior elevated to a level of childish use of power. Read the stories. And trying to account for men's actions and blame it on the gods and, uh, and see the gods behaving as junior hires many times, and, and, uh, but with a lot of power, and therefore we just can't stop them. We can just appease them, like many parents today try to appease their children. It doesn't work. We certainly can't exercise authority over them. But you see, King Agrippa and Bernice believed in the one true God. And this is not like the Roman pantheon that Festus knows of. This is a God of power. This is a God that made everything that is, that took dirt and made it living creatures, put them in his image. This is a God that destroyed the earth with a flood, that parted the Red Sea, that brought the most powerful nation on earth to its knees. This is a God that has moved and worked. This is a God that moved the sun, held it in place, that shifted the horizon for a king in recent years, in Hezekiah's day. This is that God So why, when he has done so much, why is it difficult for you to believe that he can raise the dead? When that's the hope of Israel. And Agrippa is very connected to this. And while he's talking to Agrippa, remember there's a lot hearing, Festus included, but the statement is directly to Agrippa. Why should it thought be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection, either your gods are weak and not the Lord of all the earth, creator of all that exists, or you really don't have a God at all. For if you have the God of the scriptures, the resurrection is not only possible, and believable, it is sure. Of course, should be the answer. Of course there's a resurrection. Of course the God of all the earth can raise the dead. Of course. And he has done all necessary to not only perform that on the part of Jesus of Nazareth, but also for all who would place their trust in him. And so even in the midst of this early part of his message regarding his history before he encountered Christ, he wants to introduce that this is not something strange to Judaism. It's not something strange that they are just 
fashioned here lately, but rather this is, this is ancient. This is, goes all the way back to the beginning, that this is the promise of God come to fulfillment, and that all of our forefathers, all those of faith going back, all of them, whether they be of Israel or whether they be outside of Israel, men like Naaman and, and Pharaoh over under Joseph and Nebuchadnezzar in response to Daniel, well, all of those men, their faith was in this one who could take the dead and make them alive and they are looking forward to that day of the resurrection, the resurrection of life. So he introduces this as he introduces his history that even while I was against Jesus, I still believed in the God that could raise the dead. And King Agrippa, I'm pretty sure that's the God you say you believe in. So now once we have God as that powerful, that eternal, that faithful, now we simply need to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one promised. He fulfills that law. He fulfills those promises. He fulfills that hope. That's all that we have to establish now. And that was the issue for Paul. For Paul, the issue wasn't, could there be a resurrection? Um, that was an issue. He's a Pharisee. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the resurrection. They believed all of that because the word taught it. He was of the strictest sect the Pharisees. So that wasn't really the issue for Paul. The issue for Paul was whether this guy in my day and age, right here in front of my face, is the Messiah. Whether he is the embodiment of the hope and the promise of God. That was the issue. And for King Agrippa, that is the issue still. Because the evidence is that he had already a leaning towards the Pharisaic view of the Old Testament, which, by the way, is our view of the Old Testament. There is a promised hope of a resurrection, a living God. And so he confronts him now with that truth, that principle, which Festus, it was way over Festus's head, and he acknowledged that. He says, I don't know what these Jewish beliefs are, but Agrippa does. And so he confronts him in the midst of the intro with that one truth. That this isn't new, but that rather, the question is, is this guy the one? Is Jesus the one? And he says, I didn't believe Jesus was the one for a long time. In fact, I disbelieved so strongly that I was the leader of the opposition. I was the leader of the opposition. And then God confronted me. Jesus confronted me personally. And we've studied that text earlier, and he shares that uh, with them, and but instead of being cut off in verse 17, he is allowed to finish, and that's the second part of this testimony that I want to really draw out. The first part is that this living hope, this promise, um, stretches all the way back to the garden, and it is one that we anchor in the power and the person of God Almighty. And now we get to see our response requirement. So, in the midst of sharing his testimony, we're familiar with it. Let's just pick up and um, read in, in verse 15. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have yet 
will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And remember, at that point, the Jews wouldn't let him talk anymore. That was the end. You're going to go to the Gentiles? We're not, we don't want to hear that. As soon as they heard that word Gentiles, they just went, and wigged out on him. And now we find the rest of God's purposes here and also Paul's response. It says, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And this is Paul's confession of faith. I am not disobedient to God's revelation. God revealed himself. I I took issue with Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't think he was the one. And so God corrected me on the road to Damascus and, and confronted me very powerfully with this one Jesus who who comes to Paul and and says, I'm the one you say isn't the one. And yet here I am, alive, communicating to you, blinding you. And interesting, verse 18, open their eyes, and Paul's going to have his eyes opened. And then he's going to be sent out to open other people's eyes to the fact not only of the of the truth of the resurrection, the hope, but of the fulfillment of it in the person, Jesus Christ, specifically. And this is what he has done in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. He has sought first to reach the people. Interesting, if you notice in most of your Bibles throughout this, the word Jewish is italicized because it's not in the original Greek. So we reach the people and the Gentiles. <laughs> um, I'm there to reach my people and then the Gentiles. Uh, word Jewish really isn't there in Greek. It's just the people. Reach the people and the Gentiles. Because remember, the Jewish people, everyone else isn't quite up to snuff. They're dogs. They're scum. Don't touch them. Don't get around them. Um, we're the only the people of God. But Paul makes it very clear and he wants, remember his audience. It's not just King Agrippa. It's Festus and all the important men of the city are there. And so when he makes this declaration that God wants him to bring them out of the realm of Satan into the realm of God, out of darkness into light, um, to open their eyes, and he includes all the Gentiles in that, statement over and over again, you'll find him keep referring to that commission that he received. So here is the commission that everyone can receive forgiveness of sin. Everyone can receive an inheritance among those who are set apart by faith in me. Simply place your faith in Christ Jesus and it's available to you too. The inheritance is there. The promise is there. The hope is there. And it's for you. It's for all of you. What a glorious opportunity. It's for King Agrippa because you already believe in, in, in much of this. You already understand much of this. But you need to know that this Jesus is who he says he was and is alive today. But it's also available to all who would trust in him. 
And so I was confronted with that message in verse 19. This is the requirement, the required response. The required response, the faith response, is not a prayer. The faith response is an obedient life. I was not disobedient. The opposite of belief is disobedience. Unbelief is characterized by disobedience. Those who do not believe will not accept, will not repent, will not obey. We cannot claim that I believe this information and then become disobedient to it as a consistent manner of life and rebel against it and still claim to be inherent an adherent to it. That's called hypocrisy. And it is a lie that God isn't fooled by, and neither are men, really. So, you say you want to identify with Christ. Here's the response. Be obedient. Obey Him. This past week, I was confronted by someone who was there online of someone very adamantly um, against, he says, oh, you're teaching lordship salvation, you're a heretic, and you're going to burn in hell. And So he condemned me to hell this week. He was the second guy. Uh, well, he was the first guy. He got condemned to hell twice this week, um, once on the phone and once online um, as a heretic. Um, and one of them was because, well, you teach lordship salvation. And I said, no, I teach that you can't accept Christ's without him being Lord. That obedience is faith. And I would challenge anyone to read Hebrews 11 and tell me where they just believed and didn't obey. By faith, they what? Action verb. By faith, they did stuff. It'll be a while before Bill gets to it in Sunday school, but... Read Hebrews 11. Find one person that by faith prayed um, a sinner's prayer and then lived a disobedient life. None. Because faith demands obedience. Salvific faith must be obedient faith. And Paul's response isn't, I believed. Interesting, isn't it? He says, I obeyed. I was not disobedient. I'm going to obey. Now, he has just described faith and faith is a trust, but that trust untested um, is unreliable. And that's why Christ very quickly after salvation says, uh, get baptized. Why? I want to see if you obey. I want to see if you're willing to declare me, confess me before men. Baptism will be a very public event. I want to test your obedience to see how, are you in stubborn rebellion or are you just going to, Oh, I, and I've had it. I don't like it. I don't like the idea of it. I, it. I don't think I should have to do that. Well, then don't claim to be a person of faith. Because, unfortunately, once you accept Christ as your Savior, He gets to decide what you should and shouldn't have to do. Why should Paul have to go to Damascus blind and have to seek out and wait for God's man to come to him. But he does that because God told him to. He says, I was not disobedient. 
to the vision. And so the vision called for me to declare to everybody I encountered about Christ, and I did that in Damascus, got me in trouble. I had to be delivered out of the wall, did it in Jerusalem, got me in trouble. I had to be delivered out of there, did it all through Judea, got me in trouble, did it to the Gentiles, uh, not so much trouble there. Um, and, the, and what did I say? My declaration was what God told me to tell him. Repent, turn to God, do works befitting repentance. Why in the world can't we get that last phrase in our testimony somewhere? Yes, you should repent and turn to God from sin. And then I'm pretty sure that last third phrase is obedience. Do works befitting repentance. The fruit of repentance. The evidence. Do them. Not as a means to attain salvation, but as the, the basic necessary evidence that you have salvation. That my faith is in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and therefore the very first acts of faith are obedience. It is certainly not questions. It is certainly not rebellion. It is certainly not stubbornness. Those are not ever the evidence of faith. Right? Do we have, do we go to our little children? Um, Jump, I'll catch you. Trust me. And they turn and crawl down. Did they trust you? They turned and crawled down. They wouldn't jump into your arms. Because the fact is, is that trust, first sign is obedience. The littlest children never even think about it. You don't even have to say jump. You just put out your arms and go, ha, flop right into you. And hopefully you're ready. Every now and then they jump at you when you're not quite ready and oh. When we say we trust in Christ, be ready to jump into his arms. Without delay, without question, without excuse, without complaint, we obey. Paul didn't complain. He didn't stiffen himself against the requirement. Now remember what he has to stomach here. He's going to have to go to Damascus. Yes, he's a deal with Ananias. Yes, go to Jerusalem, Judea, okay. But then came that part, you have to go to the Gentiles. I'm the Pharisee of a Pharisee. I don't mess with Gentiles. But Paul's faith is evident is that he would not possibly even conceive of disobeying God. I must obey him. And I will swallow all of my prejudices, all of my pride, anything that that I hold dear to myself. Paul says in Philippians, I'm going to count it like garbage compared to the excellence of Christ. The real evidence of Christ in you is that you're not disobedient. And so he goes and he preaches. And it is that preaching that got everyone upset because he had people repenting, turning to God, and doing works befitting of repentance. This is the response of men to the gospel that we anticipate. 
for true conversion. And that is that they are certainly sorry for their sin and confess it as such. That they turn to God and acknowledge Jesus as the one true and living God. But then they immediately begin a life's path, the way, that is characterized by works of obedience to Christ. And so he stands there and he says, I've been obedient ever since. God's helped me in verse 22. I've done it to this very day. It doesn't matter how important you are, how unimportant you are. I have shared the hope and the promise of the prophets and Moses. And I have proclaimed the light to the people and to the Gentiles. I've done my job. And I'm still doing it. And this is our calling. And we cannot divorce our receiving Christ as our Savior from a life of obedience because a life of obedience is the faith response of one to Jesus. And shame on anyone that that tries to split Jesus into portions. You know, one day you accept him as a human, then you accept him as, as Savior, and then you accept him as Lord later? No, it doesn't work that way. It cannot work that way. If you're going to accept him, he must be Lord. He must be Master. He must be obeyed. And it is in your acts of obedience that fit repentance, that show that you have changed course in your life, that you are now on this way, the way, that declares to all that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a disciple, not just a convert to a system of thought, to an idea, rather that we are followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. And this Paul comes to, he never got to really come to that with the Jews. Because they were rebellious in their heart. They They couldn't get over their prejudice of the Gentiles. And now in a Gentilian environment, from one Jew to a the king and his Jewish wife, we get the full story. When you hear the revelation of God in Christ Jesus for yourself, you need to respond. And Agrippa feels it. He feels the weight of this in public. And he's going to, we're going to talk about his response and, and everyone else a little more next week. But uh, the Lord tarries and and the uh, Lord's willing, and we will look at it, but very quickly, what is his response? Um, it says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Verse 28, Agrippa's ready. And the likelihood is, is that probably more for public reasons but he res- that he resisted, but the man is, is captivated by it. But the demands are pretty substantial, aren't they? To become a Christian means I'm going to have to obey another Lord. And that means that there's someone over Caesar. 
There's someone over you, King Agrippa. There's someone over the Jewish religious leaders. And uh, this man marches to the drum of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And Agrippa is this close to it. He sees the testimony of the resurrection, the power of its, of its working in the life, and he sees it evident in Paul. Festus, he's a long ways from it. He thinks the guy's nuts. You're a nutter. You think that, all that. Agrippa's taking it to heart. And what's taken to heart as much as anything is Paul's testimony that the way of deliverance is a life of obedience to a new king. And that king's name is Jesus. I want to challenge you today that if you're a believer or you describe yourself as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who has repented and turned to God, then do works befitting repentance. Do not be disobedient. Follow him. Even though it looks unreasonable, even though it's like, I have to do that, and very humbling, if you have truly surrendered yourself, your will to God's, then you will gladly do it. And you would not even conceive of the idea of being disobedient to God's revelation of himself to you. Don't be that close as King Agrippa was and withdraw. I almost am ready to believe. I'm almost there. But rather, that we might do the works that befit obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a sure hope that we are privileged to be on this side of its fulfillment yet we are still waiting for its ultimate completion in the resurrection of the living and the dead. Some to life and some to eternal judgment. But Lord, we know it is sure because you are faithful, you have promised it, and you have given us many undeniable proofs through your word and history. Lord, we pray that we might be ready to share the testimony of Paul that not only have we repented, not only have we turned to you, but we have not failed to obey. We've done the works that are fitting for repentant people, for humbled people who are submitted to their Lord and Savior. Lord, we we have failed to do that. We know that it's sin. And we ask you to forgive us of it for our cowardice, for our self-orientation, for our desires of this world instead of the one to come, all that distract us from doing the works of men and women whose kingdom is not of this earth and whose Lord is above all. And so, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage, the fortitude to go forth from here, being careful not to disobey what you have revealed to us in your word and through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.